This is Angry Bob, the man with the industrial dick, coming at you loud and clear on WAR Radio. Rise and shine, folks. It's a beautiful day. Just look at that sky. It's a work of art. <laughs> Nature never knew colors like that. And a friendly reminder, when you look at it, be sure to wear your shades. The radiation counts way up, and the heat wave ain't expected to let up either. Weather control tell us it'll probably hit 110 downtown before nightfall. As for the good news, there is no fucking good news. So let's rock with one of our golden oldies. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil. Yeah, he's here. What do you mean? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. That's what I said. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> Peter was having some technical issues, so he won't be with us this week. But he will be back next week. He promises. And remember, when he promises, he's usually good on that. If you guys want to do something to help out the show, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and good luck trying not to crush your nuts in that, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And now, if you guys are a Rift Tracks fan, 1201 Beyond is the Rift Tracks affiliate. Go to 1201 Beyond. Beyond.com backslash riff tracks. If you're going to order some tracks, do it through that. It helps out the show a little bit. So tonight we have a very special guest with us. A few, well, it'll be about a month ago now, Cecil and I sat down with Richard Stanley, the, I think, one of the most unsung and screwed over directors of recent memory. So we're going to look at the career of Richard Stanley before we hear from the man himself. What about Richard Stanley draws you to him? Why do you think he's such an underrated director? Even though he only has a, a small catalog under his belt. You, like, a you small catalog of feature films. He's got tons of shorts and music videos, though. Right, right. But that's not, but I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, when you talk to most people, they're just looking for like their feature film work. They're not looking at like their music videos and their shorts and all the other stuff that they've done. But even though he's got, he's got a, a, a lot of content that he's created, but a small filmography. But even still, you look at something, you look at his movies, you look at his music videos, you look at, uh, his shorts and they have his stamp on it. They have his style. I don't think that we see a lot of that nowadays. There's so many directors that are interchangeable where they don't really have a style of their own. It's just more or less whatever kind of is working at the time. And uh, his stuff, it stands out. It looks different. It's very... It's very much him. Like, remember when we did the Rob Zombie retrospective? We all agreed that Rob Zombie had such a visual style that you could just immediately go, that looks like Rob Zombie. Richard Stanley has that too. I mean, when I showed you, like, the that Fields of the Nephilim music video for Preacher Man, 
from that mm-hmm. very first frame, you're like, yeah, this is Richard Stanley. Yeah, it's totally Richard Stanley. I mean, it has his his stamp all over it. It just is so it's so nice and refreshing to see director who still has style. And there's so many directors now they push them and it's like they're interchangeable. You could insert another guy in there and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's just it's just exported product as opposed to something that uh, somebody put a lot of their own effort and style into. I would say even more than exported product, you have certain directors like the Brett Ratners and the Mick G's out there who just are so utterly bland and talentless, they literally don't look like anything. Then you have somebody like Stanley, just the camera angles he chooses, all of the lighting, the camera movement, even the production design. Obviously, you have the production designer, but you have the director directing that. His production designs look like him. You know, just like with Rob Zombie, you go, that's his style, Richard Stanley's style immediately stands out. And especially, and this is a guy who knows how to work on next to no damn money. We'll get to the films later. You tell me that Hardware and Dust Devil don't look way more expensive than they actually were. Oh, yeah. He knows how to stretch a dollar. There's so many, especially, I mean, Dust Devil, the, the cut that um, but that wasn't his fault. When you look at something like Hardware, Hardware looks like a movie that costs three times what it did. It's It's got visuals for days, and it's just really a good movie. And uh, very, just beautiful. I'm glad they, they put it out on Blu-ray, because you can really see the like texture and the depth that's put into it. It's just a good-looking film. Let's start in 1983. His first film is a 10-minute Super 8 short called Rites of Passage, which is basically trying to juxtapose where man was as a Neanderthal with where man was in the present, you know, 1983, and how all that's changed is the technology and not us as people. It's quite interesting. And then I think the one that people really need to look for, if they're a Richard Stanley fan, is his 1985 short, Incidents in an Expanding Universe, which I just want to point out is a fantastic title, by the way. It is basically a prototype of hardware. If you take out the killer droid, it's hardware. It's about a dystopian, post-apocalyptic city with the woman who lives in the apartment. She's an artist. Her boyfriend comes back from war. He's got a robot hand. You have Angry Bob, the DJ. You have the police state. It's basically a pilot for hardware. It's it's funny because, yeah, it totally is. You look at it, you're like, all right, this was the template where this where everything else was drawn from. And I think what's even more amazing is it was all done. All those special effects were done by Stanley. This is shot on Super 8. He had no money. It took him years to make this. For what it is, this is an ambitious as hell short, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's really, really like, I mean, it was back when you had somebody that would do that, where now they'll just shoot it cheaply and quickly on digital. Back then, you would have somebody like that who would work over a long period of time to gather the money and film what he could when he can, and then uh, go and gather more money and film a little bit more and manage to be able to put together something like that. So that shows like a dedication to the craft that, uh, again, is just not really around as much. 
And then in 1986, he made a short that nobody's ever seen called In the Season of Soft Rains. Most of it was lost, so can't judge that at all. But it was at this point, because he's from South Africa, writes a passage, Incidents in an Expanding Universe were shot in South Africa. South Africa was about to boil over into a civil war at the time. All of the population who was age-worthy was about to be conscripted into war. So he essentially fled to England. As a kind of a dark side note, the entire cast of Incidents in an Expanding Universe were all killed in that civil war. From this point on, he's coming out of England. He makes the documentary Voice in the Moon, and then he starts making music videos. He makes music videos for, like, Public Image Limited. He did the video for The Body. He did Fields of the Nephilims, Preacher Man, and Blue Water, which, like I said, are totally him when you see them. And he did a video for for a 1988 group called Renegade Soundwave. I recommend finding all of these videos because, man, you can see his style all over these. Absolutely. The, like, you, immediately. Like, if you watch any of his movies and then go and watch these music videos, you're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Even more so with Fields of the Nephilim because the singer, Carl McCoy, is actually the, the drifter at the beginning of Hardware. I had such a fascination and love of post-apocalyptic movies, and uh, I had, uh, I think, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I believe I either saw it in, like, a Fangoria or something, or maybe a friend recommended it. It might have been, it might have been Fangoria, because they were pushing this hard. Fangoria, not officially, but they essentially had a making-of diary. Almost every issue through the late 89, through the movie coming out, had an update on hardware. So you probably did read it in Fangoria. It seems the most likely, because at the time, I was still, you know, I would just, you know, go to the mall and get a copy of Fangoria. And uh, I I believe I saw it in there, and I was like, uh, I was like, oh, Stacy Travis. Stacy Travis, most people might recognize as the evil demon-possessed senator on the fifth season of Angel. Oh, yeah. That was? You didn't even recognize her, did you? No, not well. I mean, God, no. I mean, especially considering it had been, you know, how many years after uh, after that? Uh, but I've seen uh, a lot of movies with, with Stacey Travis. I really, uh, I really liked her, and uh, so that's that's possible. But uh, most likely, I think it was the uh, the Fangoria uh, issue, and went to my local blockbuster, and they happened to have it, and I checked it out, and I immediately was in love with it. I thought it was just amazing. I, I saved up my. Uh, Saved up my pennies and even went and bought uh, my first uh, Public Image Limited album because uh, of the soundtrack. This is what and you want. This is what, this you, what get. you get. Come on, that that is just one of the best outro tracks. I just I loved it so much. And I uh, I mean it had I mean you had Lemmy, you had freaking War Iggy Pop, War, yeah. you know, and uh, you know all the all the things that a young boy needs. <laughs> the style of it, and it was post apocalyptic and it was it had uh religious aspects of it because of the the mark uh 13s the uh, stacy travis being trapped in her apartment with this robot and fighting for her life and people coming in and getting decimated and are you telling me that you could ever get the wibberly walk out of your head oh god i still hear it that is the only thing that i don't like about the movie simply because like it's not that i don't like it but it's meant to be really really annoying and it does that job perfectly and it sticks in my head and to this day just randomly i'll hear the the wibbly wobbly and i'm like get out well i, I think it, i think it's kind of funny that 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 was uh william hootkins 
who was Porkins in Star Wars. And he he was also in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's kind of funny him going from George Lucas, and he would also star in Dust Devil as well. And then he kind of became one of Richard Stanley's regulars. Yeah, it was like go-to guy. Hey, I need I need a real sleaze bag. Can you do it? I sure well, can. In Dust Devil, he was the police captain. He wasn't too much of a sleaze bag in Dust Devil. No, he was less of a sleaze bag. To me, my, my history with hardware was just like you. I'd read about it in Fangoria, and I was so looking forward to this. I'm like, it's got Lemmy in it, and it's got Iggy Pop as a DJ, and Guar is in it, and I, I just I wanted to see this so bad. I literally waited outside Crown Cable, which was the, our video store. The day this was supposed to come out, until they got the new shipment, waiting with a Mountain Dew, I needed this video. As soon as they unboxed it, they rented it to me. I needed to see this movie. That's hardcore. The movie has been dismissed and then re- and then rediscovered and whatnot over time. I think it's a vastly underrated film because you tell me that Fallout did not is not absolutely influenced by hardware that that dj that they have in fallout that is absolutely angry bob just changed enough to not get sued isn't it oh absolutely the creators behind fallout and whatnot would admit it if they could do it without getting sued but it's like yeah this is the weinstein so yeah it's it's like no it's it's totally not but i mean they would they would say yes we took influence by it and the next thing you know they'd have a summons they they absolutely took uh, took influence from that. Well, and then in the meantime, he was still doing some of his music video work. And then Stanley, in 1992, made Dust Devil. Go, what a contentious film this was. And I don't mean that as an insulting way. I mean in that this is such a contested film. As Stan, as you'll hear Stanley tell Cecil and I in a little bit, he didn't know what the Weinsteins were doing to this film in editing. They cut over an hour of the film out to the point where when they released it on VHS, it didn't make any sense. And then, even worse, if you saw this like I did on HBO for the first time, the HBO cut was even nine minutes shorter than the VHS cut. I saw the freaking 81-minute cut on HBO for the first time. So there was a long time I went, man, this movie just doesn't work. I, I had a bootleg of the Japanese Laserdisc, which is still not the full uncut version that's out now, but it was essentially the director's cut. Man, a director's cut makes a huge difference with this film oh majorly because uh, i had I, I had been waiting for his next movie to come out i was like i have to see whatever you know what else ever else this guy does i'm in and then i rented dust devil i remember being like excited i'm like okay this is really and i'm watching it and i'm like all right this this just feels like something's not right so I watched it and I didn't like it. Now I liked the look of it and the style, but I always got the feeling that something was wrong. And that is something that has like has always been good with me, like uh which kind of factored into, you know, my video series where there's certain movies where I watch them and I just have this intuition where it's like that was not what they intended to do. And as it was, that was not what they intended to do, and as you said there was an hour chopped out of the film and eventually Actually, you know, years and years later, when I saw that uh, he had put the director's cut on DVD, I was like, I, I have to get this. I have to see what the real movie was. Got it, watched it, was not disappointed. I'm like, okay, this is what I expected. This was the movie that I really thought that we were going to get, but instead we got this insanely butchered version. In all honesty, the uncut version is one of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. I mean, just on a visual level, it is gorgeous. Oh, it's beautiful. I kind of wish 
that uh, they were able to uh, to do a Blu-ray of it. I, there's only a DVD at this point. His, but, his um, use of colors and juxtaposition, and even even the way the camera is framed with using the the backgrounds in a very Orson Welles kind of manner of you know forcing perspectives and you know layers upon layers. He took all of the shooting of this movie very seriously. It's it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's sad because there's so many movies I see now that they just drain all of the color out, and it's like you're you're supposed to use color correction to kind of help to emphasize certain things or balance it out, and not just make everything orange and and you know teal and orange. Then one of the things about Dust Devil is I should also note Dust Devil is technically a remake because he had tried to make it on Super 8 or on 16 millimeter, one of the two years earlier but most of that footage was lost so we've never gotten to see the original short that he made so technically the movie version is a remake of his own short there are things in this movie that stick out other than the edits like it is very much a 1992 movie in the aspect of time i had to explain to my son when we watched this what some of the subplots were about because this is right after apartheid and this is in south africa so there's all these racial tensions and remember there's even the two cops underneath william hootkins that don't want to take orders from zakes Makabe because he's black and it's like you really have to put this into that very specific period of just post-apartheid in south africa their whole world changed over the course of three freaking years yeah, and that's one of the things that kind of bugs me now is when people will go and look at uh, a movie now and judge it on the world now. Like they won't they're not looking at it from the perspective of the way that the world was then. And like you said it was this was right after apartheid. This was right when there you know the entire South African world was changing. Things were different, but they would look at it and just be like, "Oh, well they were being racist." It's like, "Well, that kind of goes into what was happening at the time. That's why all this you know makes sense. You have to look at history. Open a book." And then one of the other things about Dust Devil is, now, Chelsea Field, and this seems to be a, a, st- a stable throughout his career, is he only usually gets to choose one of the leads. Like in in Hardware, he got to choose Stacey Travis, whereas the Weinsteins forced Dylan McDermott on him. Now, personally, I thought Dylan did a great job, but Stanley's pick, Bill Paxton, I think would have done a better job in Hardware. You kind of have the same thing here. He did not get to choose Chelsea Field, and while I do agree with him that she does a good job, kind of get the vibe that she doesn't really want to be making this movie, whereas Robert John Burke is totally into this. He's so perfect as the titular Dust Devil. Yeah, Robert John Burke delivers a phenomenal performance. That's why when they had initially announced that he was going to be taking over for RoboCop, I was uh, I was on board with that. Then the movie ended up kind of being what it was, but I still think that he's a really good actor, seeing him in a lot of stuff over the years. Even in the Weinstein cut, I, he was giving a great performance. He was giving a very layered, just good performance. And yeah, Chelsea Field, who I like, I really like her. She's not bad, but you can kind of tell this is a Make My Rent movie. Yeah, she's not giving... I think what it is, is it's also compiled by the fact that Robert John Burke is killing it. And she's just not giving up to that performance. She's still good and it still works because the writing is strong, directing is strong, uh, Robert John Burke is strong. But yeah, she's not on the same level. 
in this movie. I've seen movies where she's great, but this, for whatever, I, for whatever reason, I just feel like if, if I was to see her at a con or something, I was to be like, hey, you know, Dust Devil, I think she'd probably be like, yeah, well, you know, I, would, I didn't really want to do it, but I did, you know. I, I actually think one of the biggest things that sticks out about Chelsea Field in this, other than her vanishing accent, some, you know, cause she's in South Africa and she's a South African citizen, you can kind of hear accent goes in and out a little bit, but Zakes Makabe, I think he does a fantastic job. I, I, I think him, he, he, he almost isn't as a, he's almost as intense as Robert John Burke in this. As a, as a man who doesn't really like what he's doing, but knows he has to, may not be qualified for the job, but is unfortunately the most qualified that they have. I think he does a great job playing a kind of multi-layered character and he's an underrated actor. Yeah, I think that uh, for for the most part, the majority of the movie really is Chelsea Field and Robert John Burke. The additional cast, I think that uh, they did a they did a great job as well. Well, and then this film, obviously, with what the Weinstein's did to it, didn't do so well. And Stanley then went on to do he went on to start the Island of Doctor Moreau, which, as we all know, turned into a cluster of epic proportions just watch the lost soul the doomed journey of richard stanley's island of dr moreau documentary to find out just how screwed he was so we're not going to go into that because it's all much more covered in that but we're going to hear from richard stanley and then when we come back we'll talk about his post film world work so first i want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us because we are all huge fans over here and you've had such an eclectic career do you look back at your career, I mean, you know, with, with the, the films that you've done and look at it in a positive light? Because you've influenced so many people with your, I, I have to say, unique style. Well, it's certainly um, good to know that, I guess. I mean, um, I recall my sister was mad at me over the idea that I'd influenced so many people because she figured I'd be putting a lot of people out of work or um, giving them a harder time with their lives. But yeah, mostly it's been a matter of, yes, survival of the shiftiest of simply doing whatever it was that um, I could get away with. Uh, my career path's been pretty random so far. W would you say that, that your style is pretty much something that you nailed down right away? For instance, w when, when I showed one of my co-hosts here you, the Fields of the Nephilim Preacher Man video, without even knowing it was Richard Stanley, he was like, that looks like Richard Stanley. I mean, you're, you seem to have hit your style pretty early on. Yeah, I imagine it's something one's probably born with in some way, like um, the ability to draw or um, creative writing, in that um, I was probably dreaming about this stuff from when I was a teenager. I guess um, I was lucky that I was just born with that gene or with those um, those weird images in my head. Certainly I was dreaming about this stuff before anyone allowed me to have a camera. Did what wound up on camera represent the dreams properly? Roughly, always cheaper, of course. The nice thing about one's thoughts and one's dreams is you're not restricted to budget. Literally, the first ten minutes of hardware are recreated from a dream. And, um, the sequence where the, um, the man of no name figure is wandering around the desert searching for something and then digging up this metal skull out of the sand was something I dreamed when I was about 12 or 13. I guess growing up back then in the um, late 70s, early 80s, like everyone, I was worried about the end of the world, about nuclear war and the environmental collapse of planet Earth, uh, the notion that I'd be living in this hellish place the whole of my life. So, yeah, those things scared me as a 13-year-old. had a lot of apocalyptic dreams back then. And I'm pleased to say that I'm working on another one at the moment, which I don't want to 
name or talk about too much for fear of, of, of jinxing. But again, it's um, actually being developed from something that started as a dream. This is my only, it's tangentially related to Dr. Moreau. If you, like, I know you were really, you know, like, you know, a champion of trying to get the job and uh, you worked really hard and put so much effort into getting it and going to being able to, ha- you know, make it happen. But there was always the possibility that you weren't going to get the job if you didn't end up getting the Dr. Moreau job, did you have any other ideas, anything else that you had planned on doing instead? Oh, plenty. I mean, as ever, Dr. Moreau was a um, a kind of a triage solution. At that point in time, I was um, desperately trying to pay the post-production bill on Dust Devil. Dust Devil, the production company, went bankrupt and were unable to finish editing the movie. So I had to take over the post-production. In order to do that, I had to invest basically um, close to 100,000 British pounds. And to try to raise the money to complete Dust Devil, I needed to sell something fast that would actually cover the tab. Dr. Moreau was the only thing sitting around that, that had that level of value to it. It certainly, if I was being sane about my career, it wouldn't have been the next thing that I would have gone into. Apart from everything else, I've always wished that I could have done a sequel to Hardware, which has um, yeah, been a source of regret all my life. I was I was going to ask you that too because uh, it uh, it ended on it was a a very definitive ending with with Hardware, but there was the possibility of there being more with the uh, the Mark 13s going into full production. And so I did always wonder if you hadn't you know if you were thinking about doing a sequel to that. Yeah, there's been a blindingly good sequel script lying around for about 20 years now. It actually got written right around the same time as Hardware. So when I look back on it now, the screenplay for the sequel still has the same level of manic intensity about it and the same the same anger as the original movie. But a number of things held it back. I mean, notably the fact that there were multiple droids, but, um, as with, I guess, Alien versus Aliens. The hardware sequel was going to be a um, more of a siege movie, a whole platoon of um, Mark 13 cyborgs rather than just one of them. And I was extremely keen to try and show what the cyborgs would do when they were fully functional, when they were actually um, operating the way they were supposed to operate. I was always bored with the notion of the droid running out of control, running amok. It, it seemed like we needed to actually show what the thing would do if it wasn't running amok and if it was do, p- performing its programming the way, completely the way that um, it was designed. There was always a budgetary problem in that, obviously, we wanted more than one droid. But, um, I wanted the droids to be pretty active, so it was always going to be more expensive than the first movie. I tried to keep the sequel script still confined to uh, one location and a single 24-hour period. It's set on Thanksgiving. Hardware is a Christmas movie, so I made the sequel into a Thanksgiving movie. There was, it was always going to be more expensive. And then unfortunately, the endless legal wrangling over the first movie between, um, Miramax and ultimately with, um, MGM and Buena Vista and, um, all the other people who claimed rights in it made it impossible for us to ever actually mount the sequel or to do a, a reboot of the first film. We've tried over and over for the last 20 years and trying to get all the responsible parties who um, claim rights in the first movie around the table to um, to greenlight a follow-up has unfortunately proved impossible. Yeah, yeah, there are a great many things in the sequel script that I regret not bringing to the screen. I know Shades was supposed to be the main character in, in Hardware 2. Let's say for the sake of argument you can get it moving forward. Would you go back to Stacey Travis and John Lynch and all that, or would you recast now that you're, you know, 20 plus years out? 
Well, there was always a big gap in time between the two stories, so it's still vaguely possible. Stacy's character's a lot older in the sequel script and has been slightly demoted from the lead, from the lead role, so it's still vaguely possible. In the sequel script, Shades is a complete wreck, in that it starts with him being, um, um, basically forcibly returned to Earth after he he becomes a health risk. Health and safety ground him after about 20 years in deep space because his bones are becoming too fragile and his blood platelet count is way down and he can't hack being in zero-G anymore. The state of play back on planet Earth is so god-awful, so much worse than the last time (laughs) that uh, he's forced to um, return to the world and try and um, make a go of it. I guess it's a sort of spoiler thing, but also I tried to um, wrap up all the threads in the sequel script by basically killing everyone, which uh, it's a pretty um, <laughs> it's a pretty fatal piece of work. It's got longer sequences of screaming and begging and than pretty much anything else I've written. Like Hardware One, it manages to dispense with the plot in about half an hour, uh, and then spends the, um, the subsequent hour as pretty much um, one extended nightmare. Yeah, we're very sorry that didn't happen. Even more so these days, because in the the sequel script is set in Texas. The droids, when they've been deployed, their first um, use is to um, patrol the um, the border wall. Because I figured that um, the thing that droids are so good at, patrolling perimeters, they're not very smart. Watchdogs with motion detectors and, and heat vision, they, I figured the first place people would deploy them is literally to guard prisons, to um, and in this case to guard the um, the wasteland, the, the border wall and the minefield, which exists between um, uh, the United States and Mexico and um, in the hardware sequel world. Don't so, give Trump uh, yeah, any ideas, scene. Richard. Yeah, I mean, there was a, it was a President Milton, I think, who was in charge in the sequel script. We named him after Milton's Paradise Lost. But um, it, it's unfortunately still um, eerily relevant when I go back to it. Also, the way the droids operated is very um, close to the, uh, the manner I imagine they'll actually work in, in real life when they eventually arrive. Usually, like, for every four or five droids, there's one um, droid operator who is um, usually about 17, and, um, working from about 300 or 400 um, miles away, and are able to um, watch what's happening on the, through the eyes of the droids. And there's always that possibility for um, to override, to actually override the cyborgs and to to go fully remote. And very much like the way that drones are operated these days, there was an emphasis on the um, on the droid operators, on the the drone operators who had been um, trained up on um, Mark 13 software and had basically gone from um, droid simulators into um, operating the real thing. And I was very intrigued at how computer nerds and people like my nephews could end up as the essentially the war criminals of tomorrow. So um, it's also an aspect of it that yeah makes me I'm um, sorry that we couldn't actually mount the thing. You mentioned that there was all the legal wrangling over hardware, which I know kept it off DVD for quite a long time. You had problems with the edit on hardware, with the MPAA and the Weinsteins, same with Dust Devil, and then, of course, what happened with Moreau. Did you ever see the 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 like Miramax cut of Dust Devil, or did you ever see the final version of Moreau that Frankenheimer put out, or were those sore spots? They're sore spots. I've never actually been able to watch the um, Miramax cut of Dust Devil. It still makes me mad all these years later. I've kind of watched pieces of the Frankenheimer Moreau. There was a um, contractual obligation screening where I was actually forced to watch it, and they were forced to show it to me. So I had to sit in the previous theater surrounded by agents and lawyers and, and watch the thing formally, and uh, then I'd sign off with it. It wasn't completely finished at that point. There was still no um, credits or um, CG work, but um, I kind of watched it from beginning to end at that point. 
but I can't say it's a pleasure. Well, because, I mean, it still has your production designs and everything, so are you still proud of what you did do on that film, or is it such a sore spot that you just kind of want to forget it, other than, you know, Lost Souls dredging it back up? Well, I think Lost Soul did a pretty good job in that it at least established something like the reality of what happened on that shoot. And that after years and years of people putting it down to just outright insanity, I think folk who have now seen Lost Soul realize the degree of corporate politics involved totally, truly unworkable the situation became. So I'm, I'm kind of grateful to David Gregory for, for putting the film together. When it comes to watching Moreau, um, it's pretty much a sore spot in that I recognize the locations. Um, I recognize the production design of Moreau's, um, Moreau's big house, the um, place he's living in, and a couple of the creatures. Mostly the hyena swine still looks pretty good. But even with the creatures, I don't think anyone was supervising the creature team after I left the production. I don't get the impression that Frankenheimer or anyone involved in his team had any interest in the monsters. Although we did worked on the initial production designs, I think from the point I was removed from the project, all of the creature people were basically left just get along with it and follow their own instincts. So most of the designs have moved quite a long way away from um, where they were originally intended. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't recognize too much of myself in it. Along those lines, you've been trying to make H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space for quite a long time. There's even a fake trailer for Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space. What is the status of that project? Because I think you'd do a great job with that unique, unique Lovecraft story. Yeah, we've been chasing it for a number of years. It's still just out of reach. I guess the problem is that it's still just too expensive. Although it's set in um, on one location, on the Gardner farm, and again is set in a fairly confined period of time, I do want creatures. But, um, there are a, a number of mutations in the um, in the movie. Obviously, this infects the human characters as well as the farm livestock and the plant life on the farm. Throughout the process, it's been a matter of you know, how many creatures can one get away with losing in order to try and make the movie happen bottom line beyond which I don't really want to go in terms of thinning out the level of, of physical horror in it. I've, I've been very keen not to go um, full CG, but to try and um, do the thing with live as much as possible with actual physical effects. And I've talked to some very, very good people about it, notably Steve Johnson and Bruce Spaulding Fuller from the old Dan Winston Creature Shop team. And yeah, we're very, very, very psyched to do it, but we haven't been able to get the monster down much beyond about our minimum bottom line has been around 2.5, 3 million, which is a, an awkward figure in given the current state of the genre. At the moment, um, most horror movies of that nature are um, basically going extremely micro-budget, and there's this um, huge gap between about the $1 million mark and, like, the $20 million mark, like you're either a studio movie or you're a micro-budget movie, and trying to um, get something done like color on a what's still a modest budget, but slightly beyond the micro-budgets people are currently used to, has um, thus far proved a sticking point. Distressed at how few people in the industry in the U.S. actually know who H.P. Lovecraft is, and that um, a lot of it's um, yeah, drawn a blank with the uh, with the backers. So again, we've been forced to um, to go to Europe and to go abroad to try and get funding for something which I'd always imagined to be um, my American movie. Do the thing as a as a tribute to the the essential weirdness of the American way of life and of the, of the country. I mean, Lovecraft's writing about New England, and I've been keen not to relocate the movie to um, to Europe or um, Bulgaria or um, Africa or somewhere else. I really would like to do it in New England, if at all possible. Well, th that story's been adapted a few times, notably into the 1987 movie The Curse, 
I haven't read the story in many years, so I don't remember how accurate those are. Would you kind of go off in your own direction or kind of follow along the same lines that the other adaptations did? Because I remember it being a relatively short story. Yeah, all of Lovecraft's material is pretty short, and the, the reason that we all go after color is because it's the one that's set on the um, on the farmstead in um, New England, so therefore it's accessible. Whereas if we went after at the, you know at the Mountains of Madness, it's set in Antarctica, or um, Call of Cthulhu involves a um, a lost continent emerging from the bottom of the ocean, so um, most of us can't afford to get access to Antarctica or the Mariana Trench. So um, it makes color out of space uh, one of the more adaptable of the the Lovecraft stories. It's Something which is yeah within within striking distance. The biggest change that I rang on the material was to um, try to emphasize the the human characters, which um, something that Lovecraft himself wasn't particularly great at. The script focused much more strongly on on the, on the family itself, on the the nuclear family living in the farmstead. And I wanted to I wanted to make it a contemporary movie as well. I, I didn't want to set it in um, the 1920s or the 1930s. I figured it was important to um, bring Lovecraft into the 21st century and to um, to set it in the in the present day. So um, I tried to create a recognizable Gardner family, a recognizable um, modern day um, nuclear family, and then to observe the horrific effects of the alien contamination upon them. The other major issue is that Lovecraft himself says that all of his stories are essentially about cosmic horror, the frightful position of um, man's place in the cosmos, and uh, yeah, our sheer insignificance in the scheme of things. And that's not something I really get off um, any of the, um, the existing adaptations. I don't think any of them are that um, concerned with the metaphysical or philosophical implications of the problem. Yeah, I think the emotional core of the screenplay we arrived at is something that's um, fairly um, unique to the material. Along with that, you also had uh, Vacation that was announced in the mid-2000s with Bruce Campbell. Is that still on the table? Not really. I mean, that one, that one was again unlucky. I seem to be, I've been pretty cursed in the latter part of my career and that I was extremely lucky when I was young. I um, seem to have used up a good deal of that, um, initial cosmic flavor that I received when I was in my twenties. But yeah, unfortunately, vacation very, very nearly went. Uh, and then we lost it just at the last moment, mostly because, um, Bruce was, yeah, offered, um, burn notice at the same time uh, and had to take a sabbatical to do the TV show. That was enough to, um, send the movie into a tailspin and send it into turnaround. And I think um, one of the problems with it is the material was so offensive, people were actively frightened of it. If anything, the, it's, it's still offensive, ten years on. Yeah, it deals with a bunch of issues, no, notably the um, the clash of civilizations. It's um, an American couple, New York-based, um, lapsed Jewish um, stock market person and his um, former lap dancer girlfriend who are on holiday in um, a Middle Eastern tourist resort in what was... Um, yeah, essentially going to be a Mediterranean, um, probably, um, yeah, close to, um, Morocco, but essentially a Muslim tourist resort at a point in time when the United States of America is wiped out by a celestial cataclysm. The lead characters discover they cannot go home. Moreover, their, um, their credit cards no longer work. Their, um, computers no longer work and they no longer have any status in the world, which, um, forces them to, um, yeah, deal with their Muslim hosts. So to some extent, it was a, um, a clash of cultures, um, 
yeah, dystopian sci-fi movie. Um, it was also a love story because um, the lead characters were essentially not in love at the beginning of the movie, but by virtue of the many terrible things they do in the course of surviving, they um, they actually do fall in love with each other. So I wanted to make a um, yeah a holiday love story about the end of the world, and it was it was largely based on all the um the the, the really truly terrible things I've seen folk do while on holiday. Yeah, the the, the brutal insensitivity we tend to um, show towards our hosts. Yeah, the whole thing was going to be set in one ho- one hotel resort, so it's going to be relatively low budget. The um the cataclysm was going to be off screen. But, um, I wanted to go through the various classic phases that would happen if somebody essentially yeah switched off their um or, or more explicitly cut off their financial penis, where um <laughs> you'd sort of spend the first twenty four hours trying to behave like it was all okay and that things would go back to normal, and then there'd be, then, then the shit would really hit the fan about forty eight hours in, pretty much the same way that it happened in um in New Orleans during the during the American, but there's a period of time where everyone tries to go on as if everything is normal, and then um, suddenly you realize that actually it's not going to go back to normal, uh, things aren't going to be fixed. Who did you have in mind for the uh, the girlfriend role? For a while it was set up with Denise Richards, which was back in the day, uh, um, the girlfriend um, Carly in the script, short, short for Carlotta. She was written as a, um, a pizza bagel, ex-lap um, dancer, um, glamour model. Finally comes into her own when, in the script when she eventually realizes that she's, um, it's her job to, um, to be, um, yeah, Carly, the, um, the goddess of destruction, the destroyer goddess who dances as the world burns. Yeah, Carly actually has a good time, liberated from um, the need to um, be nice to anyone for money because there is no more money. Carly starts to realize herself in the script. And, yeah, became a, um, I think a um, truly terrifying figure by the the last third of the movie. In the Lost Souls documentary, I can't remember if it was the if it was another person or yourself who mentioned that after Moreau thought your career was over, and you know you you took a, a while off. Uh, how did you get involved with like Theater Bazaar and to do the segment in that, or to do Sea of Perdition? How did you finally come back, for lack of a better way to put it? It was pretty much accidental, like these things normally are. Sea of Perdition was just a um a gag because um that came out of me spending a long period of time chasing um chasing a Nazi archaeologist named Otto Rahn from um the nineteen thirties. Otto was an SS archaeologist who was a Grail expert and um I became obsessed with um trying to uncover the um the facts about his life back in the nineties. And at one point I followed Otto and the SS expedition from the nineteen thirties all the way up to um the North Pole to um to the arctic there was a section where um the ss had got, had gone on this polar expedition the issue was as to what the hell the nazis were doing at the poles to begin with continues to reverberate around the genre um with all kinds of crazy stories so i, I wanted to find out and i ended up going up to um the icelandic north cape and the the greenland ocean to try and figure out what the ss had been doing up there and um, when we got there i discovered the place looked like mars which um, took me off guard. The, the fact it looked so much like the planet Mars meant that um, me and um, my then-girlfriend and the one friend I had with me ended up improvising that the Sea of Perdition. We we made the spacesuit. We stole the um, top of a, um, a streetlight to make the the helmet out of, just improvised it because we figured that the location was too good to, to waste the opportunity. But it wasn't out of anything else other than simply blundering into a place where um, I suddenly realized we were um, essentially standing on a, an alien world. Strange rock carvings you see in Sea of Perdition are all real. Subterranean um, warm water lake that you go down into is completely real as well. We didn't, we didn't design or build anything. It was just like that. And it seemed kind of cheeky to be... Um, 
in a sort of gateway to the hollow earth or in um, some weird hyperborean ruin like that to uh, decide to uh, to fake it up to make it look like like Mars to uh, shoot one lost world on location or another. So that was yeah pretty much a um, a gag, something improvised in the spur of the moment. Theatre Bazaar came about because I was living up here in the mountains in Montsegur and I had a um, a glow in the dark Ouija board that I'd bought from Toys R Us. Screwing around with the Ouija board, I asked the Ouija board, what should I do? Uh, the Ouija board said, make mother of toads, adapt mother of toads. And I said, well, what the f*** is that? And it said, the Ouija board explained that there was a story by Clark Ashkin Smith, which I hadn't read. I then um, went and found a copy of the story, read it. Well, didn't really necessarily care for the story that much. And then got back to the Ouija board and said, okay, right, well, what do you want me to do with this? The Ouija board is very specific and said, okay, you want, you've got to update it, set it in the present day. It needs to start with um, two Americans buying a pair of earrings in Mirapur Market and gave me very specific directions, which then um, grew into a 20-page um, short. Pretty much about a week or so later, I heard that um, David Gregory was on his way to the Cannes Festival and was trying to um, put together this um, anthology film, Theatre Bazaar. So I drove down from the mountains and headed him up, met him at um, Montpellier Railway Station on his way to Cannes. Pretty much tossed him the 20-page um, script that um, had been dictated by the Ouija board. And then um, David got back to me within a few days and said they wanted to do it. But, um, the next thing I knew, he'd um, thrown us the necessary 20 grand, basically, again, improvise it here in Montsegur. So it came about pretty much as a gag or by accident. It was a lot of fun to shoot, very wet, um, rained heavily for three out of the five days we were shooting. Yeah, enjoyed the experience. And then it was in the course of Theatre Bazaar that um, doing the um, publicity for it and the um, commentary tracks for the eventual DVD release that David, I think, asked me the question, um, what the hell really happened on Island of Dr. Moreau? At which point I gave David first um, Moreau interview, which um, he ended up using as the, um, the backbone for Lost Soul. I had no idea it would go that way at the time. I thought it would simply be a, an extra on the Theatre Bazaar um, DVD release. So as such, it was almost a uh, yeah an, an unplanned route back into um, the film business. Dust Devil is your you know your your second film, and you know the Weinstein's just totally gimped its original release. I, I remember before the the Blu-ray and the DVD came out with the the ultimate cut or final cut. I, I remember seeing it on Laserdisc, and it was much more complete. And I considered it one of the most gorgeous movies I had ever seen. I remember hating the Miramax cut, so I was like, wow, this film really benefits from have a, having a director's cut. What do you think of all the different cuts of Dust Devil? Obviously, you said you haven't, you're haven't. you still mad about the Miramax one, but was the Laserdisc version relatively close? Were you happy with that at the time, or are you only like, now the DVD is the is it? Um, I can't honestly remember the Laserdisc version. I, I do miss, miss the format, and that simply the format alone was probably one of the reasons why it looked so good. The cut that's available from the uh, the DVD, the current DVD release would be the Subversive Cinema release would have been the first one, and I think that um, after that, a couple of comp- Optimum in the UK put out a version which is the same, is the cut that I'm happiest with. It feels like the... Um, yeah, the best of all possible worlds. And certainly there's something like a 40-minute difference between the um, the director's cut and the Miramax cut. It's a, a pretty substantially different movie. 
On, I, I know you had problems with Miramax while making that. Was it Chelsea Field that was not your choice? I, I know one of the actors was forced on you. You didn't get along with them. If if you could go yeah, back, was Chelsea. I, I didn't think she was bad in the film, but who who was your choice? Well, I think originally I was, I was hot for Carrie, a lady named Carrie Fox. Way back in time was in Shallow Grave, the Danny Boyle movie. I was hoping for a much tougher, feistier um, Wendy. I, I wanted a more demonic Wendy. I felt that um, Chelsea had a hard time with playing uh, playing some of the characters' more unlikable aspects. I, I, every time that I tried to take it towards something darker, there was a degree of resistance on Chelsea's behalf. She also t- certainly didn't want to get as messed up as um, as Stacy did in in Hardware. I was spoiled by Stacy because um, Stacy was so wonderful and so willing and trusted me to be able to. Um, she let me set her on fire, throw her through plate glass, give her skin burn for a big chunk of the movie, do a lot of things to her which um which Chelsea resisted. So um yeah, I felt I was never able to um to take her character um as far down the um the trail as I wanted to. But on the whole, you know, she's not bad. I mean she still does a creditable job. Fair amount of resistance. I think Chelsea wasn't very happy about being in Africa to begin with and was kind of frightened of the location. I find Dust Devil to be a beautiful time capsule of that era. Beautiful in the fact of how you shot the movie, but also I had like when I showed that movie to my son, I had to explain to him what apartheid was and how this was just post-apartheid oh. and all this. And it's very much a time capsule of a very specific period in the early '90s, and I think that's fantastic. Almost a pre-Holocaust movie. I've, I've always thought, yeah, just at the at the point of the elections. There's obviously some kind of dark misgivings about the future, which rattles around throughout the movie. They're on the edge of a, an apocalyptic drought or, a, or some kind of famine. Rain is, is disappearing, water is drying up. And we see that there's also um, cattle trucks um, full of soldiers and um, military checkpoints all over the place. So there's a, a sense of foreboding in Dust Devil about something ghastly, which is, um, hasn't, ha- hasn't actually happened yet. Last thing we see in the movie are the um is the road the road up ahead full of armored vehicles and yeah some kind of semi futuristic um military riot control vehicles so um yeah dust devils kind of um just on the on on the brink of an apocalypse it feels to me like a, a sort of prequel to hardware. Well, Dust Devil also had something in it that is very, very emblematic of everything that you've done. You're a huge, uh, for lack of a better term, cult film fan. I mean, there's that little subplot where the one character runs the drive-in and you've got, I believe it's Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and an Argento film. You are a student of these films, are you not? Yeah, and these are films also that genuinely played in Africa in drive-ins. I first saw um, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires in a, in a drive-in suburb in the middle of Africa. An Afrikaans person announcing the film. Our second show tonight is Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. So um, these strange exploitation films and often international co-productions were yeah wandering around Africa in um, 35mm print form for years and years. And I guess that's how I learned about cinema to, to begin with. And yeah, always f- felt a tremendous um, love for those um, various um, dead-end cinemas and drive-ins scattered across the middle of nowhere. I saw John Carpenter's The Thing for the first time in um, in a place called Umtata in um, southern Africa in a cinema called the Umtata Rama with a, um, a largely tribal audience. And like going into The Thing for the first time with the, the husky running through the snow in Antarctica for a bunch of tribal people is uh, a wild experience. 
to pay homage to that. I also liked the idea that if we were going to have a witch doctor in the movie, I didn't want to have a witch doctor who was living in um in some yeah barbaric primordial circumstances, wearing leopard skin and dancing around a fire. I thought it would be more interesting to have the witch doctor be the projectionist at the local drive-in theater, which would also um, up the ante in terms of us not really knowing whether any of the bullshit that he's saying is uh, is real mythology or something that's been arrived at out of watching um, too many drive-in movies. You were saying that you were having problems, uh, the the production budget towards the end, you know, we're trying to get it finished partially to blame or more to blame as to why um, Miramax really butchered it with the American cut. I know, you know, there's the, the thing with Harvey Scissorhands where he got that name from where he would always take like 15, 20 minutes out of almost every international film. When I had first seen Dust Devil, I was really frustrated because I could tell that there was more that was supposed to be there but the american cut just wasn't that and then years later when uh you put out the uh the director's cut i saw it and i was like okay this is the movie that should have been released all those years back then and so i was glad that you were able to do that did the miramax edit have anything to do with like with that or did you already did you already have it sold to the american market through miramax at that point or were they like kind of the people that came in that helped you uh get the money to get the uh the movie finished no, Miramax actually had money in the original production. To Harvey's credits, it wasn't really their fault because what happened was the production company, Palace Pictures, was forced into bankruptcy by Polygram, which was totally not out of Miramax's ball court. We suddenly discovered we no longer had a parent company. In order to try and get their um, some return on their investment, what Miramax did is they essentially took what was then the cutting copy of the film Rather than go back to the negative, they didn't have any control over the negative, which was impounded by a lab in um, the UK. Um, Miramax made an, a new negative from the um, the cutting copy, and then they took this um, cutting copy and worked made their their edit from the goddamn cutting copy. Where, where I guess they um, stepped across the lines, and they never told anyone they were doing this. They just went ahead and did it to um, basically get a return on the investment. But it meant they never had access to the rushes. They also um, were only ever cutting inside the the assembly that they were working from. So um, they were never able to go to alternative takes or um, make any of the sequences longer or um, or complete anything. So what they were working with just got shorter and shorter and shorter. Of course, it would have been um, useful if they had um, told me or the DP or the original editor or anyone else involved what they were up to. But um, they just yeah took off with the assembly they had and essentially cut an entirely different movie out of it, which um, was so um, unworkable and yeah, such a... Um, a travesty of the original that it pretty much compelled me to try and complete the original film just to prove that there was a movie in there. And I certainly couldn't. Um, my career would have been over if I had allowed Dust Devil to, to go in the, um, the shape it was in once Miramax were done. Possibly sensitive question to ask about hardware. Well, I don't know about you, but the movie was sued by 2000 AD. Um, what was all that about? Because clearly... Clearly, it's been embraced now as even the original 2000 AD shock story has been, you know, was included in the recent DVD release. What actually happened with with them having to sue over that? Yeah, it's complicated, but some part of it I, I blame on my cousin. And that's another part of it I blame on my former DP. It's complex. I actually had a, a cousin in, in common of 2000 AD who um, drew under the name Mike McMahon, drew the early Judge Dredd material. As a result, yeah, I was um, at that time also when I was growing up surrounded by um, the huge big artworks for um, the original um, 2000 AD stuff. 
And this was, yeah, the Judge Dredd's time in the cursed earth. Uh, my cousin was um, bitterly angry at IPC most of his life because he felt his copyright had been ripped off, uh, particularly because they'd, um, um, they'd made toys out of his la- the Landmaster, which he'd designed for um, the cursed earth, etc., etc., and was uh, constantly pissed with um, IPC for not paying his royalties. So all this was kind of uh, going on simultaneously. I was skeptical of the whole thing because I was simultaneously aware of the fact that they were um, stealing the material from somewhere else and that the entire Cursed Earth plotline had been um, basically taken from um, Roger Zelazny, and that it's uh, pretty much a swipe from um, from the original Damnation Alley, with this issue of having to drive the Landmaster across the Cursed Earth from Mega City 1 to Mega City 2. So I guess I was maybe too familiar with the material at that time. I, I would imagine for sure elements of that do find their way into hardware. There's a whole bunch of things that find their way into hardware. I mean, to a large extent, I, I guess for me the biggest influence at the time was really Dario Argento. I mean, how how hardware arose was that hardware started out life as an hour-long Super 8 movie in which there's no droid, um, but it does have um, Jill and the one-handed boyfriend and shades in the apartment next door, and it's set over Christmas Eve, and they're all living in this um, god-awful future city, and it's resolutely depressing. But it was pitched more like um, Fat City in the 21st century and was bor- borrowing from... Um, yeah, Make Room, Make Room, the Harry Harrison book that inspired Soylent Green, the dystopian 70s um, sci-fi fiction that was around at the time, about which um, painted a, an extremely bleak picture of what the world was going to be like. If anything, the, the Harry Harrison novel that Soylent Green is from is, is way darker than, than Soylent Green, kind of closer to the reality we've ended up living in. So, yeah, that all went into the Super 8. Then I tried um, getting this um, a feature film based on it off the ground for about 10 years with no luck whatsoever. During this time of constant rejection, a huge number of different people said, I'll tell you what you should do, mate. Put a um, either an alien or a, a war droid into the thing. And if you put a monster in and have it kill everyone, then, uh, you know, it'll work because it's right now we've got Terminator and Alien. So if you can make it into a one-location um, monster gets out of the bag and kills everyone movie, yeah, we can probably get it greenlit. So the, the, the way that it turned into an action horror movie was a, a later evolution. And when it did that, I kind of, because there were so many alien ripoffs at that time, it was the late 90s, sorry, late 80s, 89 was when it was. So, yeah, um, every other direct-to-video movie seemed to be set in a warehouse, a darkened warehouse with some barely seen alien creature and a bunch of characters, um, yeah, prowling around with flamethrowers. So we want, uh, figured, okay, for that reason, we'll make it a droid rather than an alien because um, I don't want to go down the the alien route. Because of James Cameron and Terminator, we were very um, keen to make it as different from Terminator as possible. Banned um, all blue rim lighting, all um, all the blues and grey tones we took out of the movie, and we tried to make it look um, as, as as less like um, Terminator as we could. And for that reason, I went to Dario Argento and thought, okay, can we make this thing look like Suspiria or Inferno instead? Um, and, um, yeah, stole a bunch of ideas from um, Stage Fright and Demons, both of which are um, stories contained in single locations where characters are trapped in, in a theatre or in, um, in, in a cinema building, which, um, yeah, certainly fed into um, the way hardware looked. And along the way, I guess, none of us really um, saw that it was still, um, yeah, owing that heavily to Judge Dredd. When Fleetway Comics came over the horizon while we were making the film, it came as a bit of a, as a surprise. But I think, as you say, we've pretty much kissed and made up since then.
were you a little angry at the time? Like all of a sudden finding out you're being sued? Um, not really, because I don't think they even told me at the time. I think that's that, the way to um, do it. So the producer didn't um, just when when they came over the transom, cut some kind of deal with them and to just make them go away. I think it was somewhere in post production where I was going, "Hang on, what's this credit? And how did that happen?" But I think that um, most of the row between whatever played out played out behind the scenes, uh, and I was still too busy battling, um, yeah, Miramax at that point and the the day to day shooting to be um to be fully aware of it going on. Well, Hardware is one of those films that looks way more expensive than it actually is. Every time I've shown that to somebody, I tell them what the budget was, and they're like, this looks way more expensive. And that's the same thing with Dust Devil. I guess from what we can tell from Moreau and even your short films, you seem to know how to get a hell of a lot out of a very small budget, which always makes me wonder, why the hell don't you work more? Yeah, I've always had that same question. I've never gone over budget in anything in my life. I've never gone over schedule either. Which, uh, and I've never killed anyone or killed any animals. So yeah, I've always had a perfect health and safety record, and I've always delivered yeah, it frequently confused me. And many times, as with Dust Devil, um, just the sheer fact that I was delivering the movie seemed to puzzle people. Miramax and the powers that be seemed to be actively angry that I was completing the edit and actually uh, completing the film. But um, I've always had a, um, yeah, a kind of samurai work ethic when it comes to that stuff. But, um, yeah, coming out of amateur filmmaking, Super 8 films and things, I've always had a, um, an idea of how to, um, to stretch the budget. I mean, Dust Devil's big idea was to take the reason it's set in Africa is because we realized we could get a um, tremendous bang for the budget by um, shooting in Namibia. I mean, in the um, shooting in the real world, there's no way that they would have let me have helicopters and um, steam trains and riot control vehicles let alone blow up houses and things. So, yeah, part of the idea on that one was to go somewhere where um, the exchange rate would be sufficiently favorable that we'd be able to um, yeah, make a much bigger movie than we'd be able to make if we were shooting in, um, say, London or Los Angeles. Well, speaking of that, you've had on, on almost all of your films a problem with with one of the cast members you know like you didn't want dylan mcdermott you didn't want chelsea field you didn't want val kilmer and have you ever like run into dylan just you know at a premiere or something or run into val is it awkward not particularly because i think dylan did a great job at the end of the day he just wasn't the um my first choice I continue to um, question uh, Miramax's um, politics on these things because um, I've always been surprised that they wouldn't let me have Bill Paxton, who was um, my first choice for the part. Yeah, been a, been a regret. But, um, I think Dylan did a great job anyway. It changed the character. But, um, I'm not in any ways unhappy with the way that uh, things turned out. Val, it's a different matter in that um, Val definitely f***ed up my life made a difficult situation in uh, which is yeah shooting under those loca on those locations with the hurricane was virtually impossible anyway val just conspired to um to make something that was um, already virtually impossible totally impossible which um but the irony is that when i did run into val again um val hugged me and kissed me and apologized and told me that he'd realized that he'd fucked up the movie that he shouldn't have yeah pulled that stuff at the point where he pulled it during those um opening two three days in um in queensland but it's yeah way too late by then and it doesn't bring the movie back or um change the change the circumstances but yeah weirdly val did um did kiss and make up because because of lost souls it did kind of bring your name back into the fray and uh it it really uh showcased a lot of attention onto the fact that the movie turning out the way it did was not your fault it was just a a comedy of errors and a lot of uh production nightmares from uh, the studio heads on up and Val Kilmer and whatnot after lost souls was released 
and got so much critical acclaim. Did you get any unusual uh, offers be- that stemmed from that? Not as not as many as I would like, and uh, I think it suddenly put the message out there. Yeah, I'm hoping now to finally make another movie. And I think Lost Soul has been a big part of that process. And I'm, I don't want to um, talk about it too specifically because it's something completely new, which is, I will say, that it's set in the um, in the near future. And uh, it's, of course, low budget. Yeah, I'm very much hoping to be um, turning over on a, uh, an, uh, on a third feature film um, by the end of this year. So I um, do have um, Lost Soul to thank for that. And I'm also very much hoping that if all goes well, inshallah, and the dark gods of the genre are on my side, that this will then turn the key on um, Color Out of Space, because I've by no means given up on that. After talking to Richard, did you kind of understand why he feels so kind of beaten down now and why, and I'm not saying this in a in a negative way, but why everything he's done after the Moreau disaster is not nearly as well known as it should be? Yeah, he just got he got hosed. Like there's there's no way around uh, around Val that. Val Kilmer owes him more than an apology. To be fair, I think that it was like Val Kilmer. He at least did apology. He does owe him more than an apology, but at least he did own up to it. Because I mean, how many horror stories are there in Hollywood where somebody will completely screw somebody over and then just have you know never do anything about it? At least he said that he was sorry. So I give him that. I give that's a night. You know, that shows at least some character growth that he was like, you know what? I admitted I messed up. Really screwed him over. I do think if you haven't seen Lost Soul, you really have to watch it just to see the insanity of everything they went through and how Marlon Brando had so much faith in Richard Stanley. That was really the reason why he came on board to do this movie. And when they fired him from the movie, Marlon Brando was just like, all right, I'm just going to make everyone's life miserable. I don't even care anymore. I don't care anymore. I'm the star of this production, and you just removed the entire reason why I'm here. Screw you. You know, he just was giving a nice middle finger back to uh, to uh, the, the studio. And I think that that was kind of, that was, in a way, that was his way of, of you know, giving, uh, giving Stanley a, a little bit of backup because he didn't have it. I'm just so annoyed because I think that if that move, if he was able to make the movie that he wanted to make, there's no way that wouldn't have rocketed him into stardom. It wouldn't have been the disaster that Frankenheimer made. No, it wouldn't have been. Well, I mean, again, uh, for, for, for Frankenheimer, like he tried to do what he could with, with this mess. And I'm not even so sure about that. The documentary makes it pretty clear Frankenheimer came in, started treating everyone like crap, and he did not like having to use Stanley's designs and Stanley's set decorations because it didn't, it wasn't him anymore. He, he came, mm-hmm. They made it very clear he came in with an attitude. Oh, he came in with an attitude and ego, absolutely. But uh, but also, he was trying to piece together what was left over, and if there was a little bit more to it, if they're like, okay, he was being more of a jerk because of this reason or that reason, I think that there's a little bit more to that story. So I think that... Um, I, I think there's more to a couple of the stories there, because obviously I understand why Val Kilmer would not want to be involved in the documentary. There were two other very conspicuous absences. I mean, obviously Marlon Brando's dead, John Frankenheimer's dead. Ron Perlman and David Thewlis, they didn't even mention in the documentary. And that leads me to believe both of them said, I want no part of this. I think it's also coming down to it's it's such a black spot 
on a lot of people's careers because it's so well known as being a disaster. Like people, there's so many people that don't know like the reasoning behind it. Like most people go see a movie and it's either good or bad. And if it's good, great. If it's bad, oh my God, I'm never going to watch anything with uh, with this person or the, this director again. And I think that's kind of the thing. People don't want to say, hey, I was in this movie that's notoriously known as being one of the worst movies ever made, and it's not the fault of the movie that it is what it is. After the after the Moreau disaster, now this was made prior to Moreau, but didn't didn't really get released till after. This is the only one of Richard Stanley's directorial works I was not able to find. 1994's long form music video Brave, and when I asked Stanley about it, he literally told me. You aren't missing anything. He has <laughs> essentially disowned this this long form music video, saying that the producer is completely wrecked it in editing and he wants no part of it anymore. Having not seen it, I don't know if it's any good or not. But then after Moreau, he made two more documentaries, The Secret Glory and The White Darkness, and then he made some really interesting shorts, such as Children of the Kingdom, part of what was what was a film series called Europe 99 Euro Films. So he literally had 99 euros and was meant to make a film. And he went and made one about a literal city underneath London where all of the, all of like the mutants and whatnot roar, roam, and he was running from them through the subways and whatnot. I mean, the first line is, there's a city beneath the city. It's it's interesting. It, it it's not great, but you can absolutely see his style all over. Then and then he did the Sea of Perdition. This one is very interesting. Okay, Sea of Perdition is a sci-fi story, which we don't get a whole lot of from Richard Stanley. Sea of Perdition was a 2006 series of films from Errant Films, their IBM project, which it was five separate films, all based on the Johan Johansson composition, The Sky's Gone Dim and The Sun's Gone Black, like a siren call in space on Mars, and you kind of have to see it to understand it. He talked about it a little bit in the interview. For a film that was made on literally no money, it's pretty damn good. I mean, there's not a lot of story, but I thought Sea of Perdition was pretty damn good, even before I found out it was made on absolutely no money. Then he did a film called Black Tulips, which is a werewolf short, which is not too bad. And then, I, you know what, Richard was so nice, I really hate to say his segment of the Theater Bazaar anthology, Mother of Toads, is easily the weakest in that entire anthology. Man, I didn't like it. You can still see his earmarks all over it stylistically, but I thought... Man, you chose a bad story for this one. The story is just not good. I think in general, like, I didn't care for the whole thing. So, uh, so I think that, um, it, it was such an odd choice to come back to. Like, I'm like, this is, like, I would rather him come back with something. But I, I, I think it's still done well, but I just don't think that, uh, it's up to, uh, his normal caliber. Well, and then he co-wrote a movie. Somehow I missed in 2006, British film called The Abandoned. I watched the trailer last night. It looks really interesting, and uh, even though he didn't direct it, knowing his writing style, I can tell he co-wrote this thing. It looks like a really interesting take on both a haunted house, predestination, and shared memories. And I'm actually looking looking forward to 2006's The Abandoned. I somehow missed that one. I saw it 2000. The idea yeah. of the house coming back together and all this that that's very richard stanley 
Oh, absolutely. It's actually there. There's some imagery that they use within the film to kind of tell what's going on. I don't want to spoil it because there is a lot of stuff that gets unveiled over the course of the film, and it's not really what you think it is. The mystery is very weird. I honestly, the guy who directed it, uh, Nacho Cerda, I think that uh, he did a good job with it, but I think that because of Stanley's writing behind it, it does have a little bit more of him in there. And I think that uh, I, you know, and this is also me just wanting him to do more, but I would have liked to have seen him directing this. I think that he probably would have had a little bit more uh, style in it, but it's still, it's a neat movie. It's a little dull at times, but I think the, the concept of it more than makes up for the, the dullness, especially about the last half hour when stuff really starts to come together and you're like, what is going on? As he talked about in the interview, he's got a couple of films that never got made that man i would like his his idea for hardware 2 would have been amazing with the whole trump building the wall and he had the wall back there when he wrote it in the early 90s with patrolling robots from you know kids controlling them like with nintendos and you tell me that doesn't sound really cool his hardware 2 idea yeah, when he was explaining that, I was like, oh, why didn't we get this? I would have liked that so much. I actually think that the one, the one that we're probably going to be ruining the most that we never got is Vacation with Bruce yeah. Campbell. Cause that sounded phenomenal. And I actually think it would be more poignant now if he could still get it made. In the current political climate we're in, uh, you know, the socio-political climate around the world, that's actually more of a, more of a pointed tale now than what, what it was in the early 2000s, isn't it? Oh yeah. And the thing that sucks is that vacation like almost happened. It was just scheduling conflicts that they couldn't, they couldn't resolve. Freaking burn notice. It was burn notice. And, and burn notice had not been picked up. Or if maybe he would have, or if maybe there would have been like uh, a couple of months gap between the, the beginning of filming or something, just enough to get the film done, it could have happened. I mean, that happens fairly often where movies just, you know, they, they don't get their star and then it just falls apart from there. And that's basically it. They, uh, they couldn't get Bruce Campbell because of a burn notice and then the whole thing fell apart because the whole thing was hinging on him being in it. And it's just bummer. It's a bummer because it would have been another awesome Richard Stanley film and it would have been another, it would have been another Bruce Campbell film and and a bruce campbell film that's pretty different from a lot of uh, other bruce campbell films and then the other one which as again he talked about okay color out of space is one of my favorite hp lovecraft stories so it's one of you know lovecraft often does you know the ethereal horror and very rarely did lovecraft do straight up science fiction and it's even you know different way more different because it's early 1900s understanding of science fiction richard stanley's been trying to make the color out of space for years now and and you know that movie has technically already been made a couple of times but the most obvious would be the first curse film from the 80s the will wheaton one i think stanley could really bring a different perspective especially stylistically to color out of space I, I would love for him to be able to do that. I hope that, uh, I know it's on again, off again, probably not going to happen. Maybe it will happen. Uh, just come on. I mean, uh, Richard Stanley is what? In his like sixties now? St- Stanley is still young enough that he would absolutely be able to get at least probably two more good films out of him. Not, you know, uh, wouldn't it be ironic if the only people willing to bankroll him were the Weinsteins again? 
Oh God! And then, oh my God, how bad they they would take his movie and then edit and then butcher it, and they'd be like, oh, why is this guy back making movies? We knew it was a mistake. No, you ruined his movie. <laughs> God just, damn you, Weinstein's. Richard Stanley is such an underrated director. Not a lot of people know his name. I hate to see, say a lot of people don't even know most of his films. I think unfairly most famous for the Doctor Moreau disaster. Not only was that not his fault. Him not making that movie is why it was a disaster. And I, I think that's unfortunately what he's always going to be remembered for. Instead of for hardware, instead of for Dust Devil, he's going to be remembered for the guy that got fired from Dr. Moreau. And a lot of people are going to look at it like, oh, God, it's a good thing you fired him. You know, it's like, no, the, like you said, the reason why the movie sucks is because they fired him. If you had to summarize Richard Stanley's career, how would you do it? Tragic. That's not a, not a bad word to use. I just think he has such an amazing visual eye and I think he's a great writer and I don't, I don't throw this word around lightly. Actually understands what subtext and subtlety are in a film. You, you hear the word subtext thrown around a lot by cinema snobs, but go back and look at Hardware and Dust Devil and tell me there's not a hell of a lot of subtext in those movies. They're just beautiful movies. Like hardware, uh, hardware was a very brown and red movie, but it still like popped. It still had a very distinct look. It had a grunge to it that uh, he just did a, an amazing way of conveying, and we don't really, uh, we don't really get that. So I want to thank Richard Stanley for taking the time to talk to us. He was awesome. And because of the time difference, Cecil and I were recording it at like 2 in the afternoon our time. And it was like 9 at night for him because he's over like in the mountains of France or something. So I want to th I want to thank him for taking the time out of his night to talk to us with the massive time difference. Cecil, am I lying when I say we sat and talked for almost an extra hour after the interview you people just heard? We just were shooting the shit about all this different stuff? Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's nothing more exciting than when you're actually talking to somebody. They're like, I mean, I've, I've had interviews with, uh, with, with famous people and whatnot before, and they're usually on like a timeline. It's like, all right, I got 15 minutes for this. And, but like, he was just like chill and relaxed and it was like you were just having a conversation somebody who you know you you admired and uh and he was cool he was totally cool it was it was great i was uh was overjoyed to be talking to somebody who i uh admired as much as he was and to have him not be a dick to just have him be like a really cool laid-back guy great and to talk to i i absolutely love the part if you remember two of our conversations were why fangoria sucks now and remember he was lamenting laserdisc as a format yes yeah <laughs> unfortunately none of you people get to hear that but yeah th that was a fun conversation so. yeah we we had a lot of fun with him he was he was awesome uh very very happy that i was around to uh to chat with him yeah you actually showed up this time unlike the joe bob briggs interview i well I had the time to, we're, we're in like different parts of the, the states. I got my times mixed up. I'm sorry. And All believe right, me, well, nobody's more mad than I am. I, I, you know, I was called Joe Bob 2.0. I wasn't going to tell him that, but, cause I'm not sure how he would take it, but, uh, I'm sure he probably would, you know, have some sort of sarcastically brilliant remark. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm bummed that I didn't get to talk to him. I, I love Joe Bob. Well, where can people find Cecil? You can find me at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on you or as yeah goodbadflicks on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. 
And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. You guys need to go out. You can find most of the Richard Stanley short films and music videos. The bulk of them are on YouTube. Uh, I think the Public Image Limited stuff has been removed from YouTube for copyright reasons. You know, John Lydon being fickle as he is now. But you can you can still find him on Daily Motion and whatnot. Go look for his music videos. Look for those short films. And you'll find a director that all of a sudden you are now a fan of. Thank you, Richard Stanley. And guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want.
Radio Drum is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.